Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Long Monday Podcast. I am here with my two other co-hosts. I, of course, am Mike Kane. I am here with Caleb Salibi. Caleb, how are you? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I've also got Jason. Hey, what's up? Just enjoying this nice, cold, blah weather. You know, yes, it is. Perfect. Perfect. Ugly day outside for sure, but we are inside. We're here with good company. we got a great guest, and we are in good tidings because this is a guest we have spoken of many a time. Uh, in fact... He might be our biggest fan, uh, is the way to put it. Uh, Don, how are you today? Good to have you. I am fine. What better thing to do on a rainy, cold afternoon than have a nice little conversation with three of my favorite actors? So here we Well, are. you happen to be our biggest fan of this show, so That's we're true. fans of you as yeah. well. So we love that you love us. Um, and so really, <laughs> we wanted to bring Don on for many a reason, because literally every episode we've done, I feel like Don has come up in every single one. Uh, so it's about time that he finally gets on this podcast and has some things to say. So in some ways, I feel like my function here is you've had everybody else. You've had stage managers, you've had directors, you've had lighting and sound people. Um, and I guess I'm the audience, So, which is the other, the other essential part of the whole theater process here. Um, my husband Roy and I moved down to the Grand Strand in 2012, and we've been here ever since. When we moved down here, we moved down here from Cincinnati which is a great theater town. It really is a great theater town. So we went to everything there. And we say, well, we love the Grand Strand because we had vacationed at Sunset Beach, North Carolina forever. And we said, oh my God, we're going into this theatrical desert. It's true. And then we found, <laughs> yeah. and then we found, and we found Theater of the Republic and Atlantic Stage and CCU's theater department and eventually Dreamhouse Theater, Patrice Reynolds' uh, endeavor, and uh, stage left. My heavens, it isn't a theater desert at all. It is a place where you can see some really good theater on all kinds of levels. So we go to everything when COVID isn't around, that is. Yeah. Um, the first play I ever saw, I was in. Um, I came, I went to a very small high school in Cornfield, Indiana, Cornfield Country, Indiana. Uh, and we did a play, junior class did a play, senior class did a play, and it was non-royalty plays, which means they were cheap to produce. You didn't have to pay a licensing fee. Uh, I mean, one of them was a hillbilly farce called Moonlight and Applesauce, and the other one was a, a takeoff on Agatha Christie uh, called Mumbo Jumbo. It's the only theater I had ever seen. Movies, yeah. Our parents all sent us down to the local theater on Saturday afternoon to get rid of us. But theater, no. Then I went to Indiana University. And Indiana University, had, back then they, were, they did opera in English every Saturday night, which will hook you on opera for mm -hmm. sure. And they had a small but mighty theater department. They did all sorts of stuff, but they also every summer led a theater tour to New York. And I convinced my parents to let me do this little thing. And this was the summer of 1964. I mean, I was born in 1945. I'm not even officially a baby boomer. And you went and you stayed in a seedy hotel close to Broadway and you saw a show every opportunity, which meant on Saturday and Wednesday, you saw two shows. 
And if you wanted to on Monday, when the theater was dark, you saw an off-Broadway show. Sure. So, so we saw everything. And we didn't, if that season in 1964 did not make you a theater fanatic, nothing would. Because what we saw was the original Funny Girl with Streisand, original Hello, Dolly, uh, with, Carol Ch with Carol Channing. And we saw Fade Out, Fade In, which was supposed, which was a vehicle for uh, Carol Bur Burnett. And we saw book plays. Barefoot in the Park was still running with the original cast, so that was Robert Redford and Elizabeth Ashley. Wow. And we saw the subject was roses. And Mike, you know who originated the role you played when Atlantic Stage did it? Yes, it was Martin Sheen, wasn't it? It was Martin yeah. Sheen. A young Martin Sheen, and you had no clue what was going to happen to Martin Sheen later. Blue. And what kind of a season was that? And if that didn't bring you back uh, as an absolute theater fanatic, nothing would. And it was live theater, of course. And things went wrong. And you learned about that when things went wrong. What Carol Burnett had had a taxi accident. She wasn't doing most of her performances, so we saw the understudy which was a lesson in what happens when you write a show for somebody and then somebody else completely different has to step in. The poor girl tried her best. <laughs> Ever since, um, you know, I've been in community, community theater a couple of times, I've been on stage a few times, and that reminds me. You had the podcast about actor-director relationships. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh, segue. Here's a segue. <laughs> Here's a segue. <laughs> I got I, you know, was working and I thought this would be nice. I can do some community theater maybe, and you know, be a nice break from the grind. So I auditioned for a play and I got in. The play was Something's Afoot. If you've ever seen Something's Afoot, it is a scream of a little takeoff on Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. You get people, you get people isolated in a, in, a, in a big house and people begin dropping dead. And it's a musical and, and it's just fun little songs. Caleb, it was the sort of thing you would get no artistic uh, feeling about doing this show. But it was fun. I played the first person to die, which means I was on stage for less than 10 minutes. Then I was in The Odd Couple. I was Vinny, who was one of the card players. So you're on the first of the first act, you're on the first of the second act, and otherwise you're in the dressing room listening to the show go on because sure. you're done. I was cast in The Music Man. I was cast as Charlie Cowell, the Anvil Salesman. Charlie is in the beginning scene, the Rock Island train number and he's the one that starts everybody talking about Harold Hill this con man and where is he and all that and then you don't see Charlie again until the next to the last scene of the show in act two when he comes back to unmask Harold Hill before the townspeople yeah. <laughs> so th this was the kind of theater experience I was <laughs> I was doing short scene nothing else scene at the end but it was fun as all get out. But the director of the community theater that I was involved with and directed at all the shows 
knew how to move people around a stage, knew how to cast people, though he had, it's community theater, you've got your own stable of folks, but he knew how to cast. But when it came to trying to get out of an actor what he wanted them to do, he wasn't very articulate and in some cases made up for that by increasing volume. Mm. Much like when you're talking to someone who doesn't speak your language, you think that speaking louder will do this. And he was basically a screamer. And after a while, I said, I don't need this. There are people who are desperate to get into these shows and don't care. But I said, I don't need this. And it was 20 years then before I was ever in another show. Wow. So, 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 so there so you go. So a sorted history of how you came into theater, then literally came into yes. theater. And then... Saw yeah. literally all theater um, because, as you mentioned earlier, and this is not a joke, audience. Don and his husband literally see every single show that this area does. It doesn't matter if it's sideshow theater, like on the sidewalk. Don and Roy will be there first opening night. <laughs> we will try. Um, we will try. So I, I need to, I need to say we did not see enough of Dreamhouse's productions, and we don't see enough of Stage Left's productions, um, and that's a timing issue more than anything else. But do we sure try to get everywhere? Right. I also think, too, that's a uh, – you don't have to blame yourself completely for that. I miss a lot of those shows, too, because what happens is theaters around here, they they overlap each other's weekends too much. You know, I think it's – you know, you get into some areas where they, they communicate a little bit better with talking to each other and figuring out, okay, you know, let's not do our opening of our musical this weekend because so-and-so is doing their opening of their musical this weekend. So, I mean, unfortunately, Myrtle Beach is one of those areas where even though we have so few theaters, all four theaters will have an opening on the same weekend. And you're just like, who? Why? Yeah. Nobody thought to, like, check a calendar and decide we shouldn't do this. But, yeah, uh, I missed a few too, Don. Um, but, but you're yeah. there. I mean, I would say if you missed a few, you're Don, trying. you probably missed three uh, <laughs> out of, like, 85 um, you know, which is still a feat to behold anyway, you know. One of the neat things about it is since you all play every place and people tend to show up on stage regularly, you really feel like you get to know the actors. Sure. Um, and sometimes you kind of feel like you know what to expect from them. Uh, and every once in a while you will be surprised. <laughs> and that's all part of of live theater too, feeling like you get a relationship. You're, you're having this, not just a conversation for one play, you're having an extended conversation with these people uh, in different venues and in, in different plays. We really like it. Well, Don, I think what, you know, a lot of, we have a lot of audience members who perhaps know us in a similar fashion of like, oh, I've seen that person in that show. I've seen Caleb in multiple shows. I see Jason in these shows. Mm -hmm. I recognize <clears> these people. But a lot of these same audience members perhaps don't have the theater background you do. So you mentioned earlier that you serve the purpose of this particular podcast as audience member, which I think is great, but you're also knowledgeable in theater as well. So you mentioned earlier, I think it was a little dig at Caleb, if I remember this correctly, um, a little artistic <laughs> no, dig at him. It wasn't a dig. I don't know. No. See, so one of our most recent episodes was on this notion of art versus profit, and I think we want to hear your opinion on this topic as audience <laughs> member. This will be a discussion. Sure, Yes, <laughs> will be a discussion. Uh, well, it may be. Well, you've already had the discussion, uh, actually. But here, here we've only had the discussion with each other. We haven't had it with somebody yeah. outside of the group. Okay, you've still you've got to keep the doors open, obviously. And you guys touched on this far. So, okay, we do th something we know will draw an audience. 
uh, and then maybe we do something a little more difficult. And where you were talking to Bruce Thompson from TOR, he went into that a little bit with what they have to do with their programming the same way. You have to do both things. I, I, in Cincinnati, we had a friend. Well, Playhouse in the Park has two theaters. One is the big theater that will do big shows. And then they have a smaller theater also that does less well-known things and things that might make you think a little more. One of our friends said, I don't go to theater to think. I go to theater to be entertained. So they had, they had season tickets to the big theater, not to the smaller one. We have a friend here who will not go to see anything he has not heard of. Uh, I mean, this day and age, something that abuses me a lot, you'll be sitting in the audience and people will come in and sit in front of you. Uh, and usually it's the husband will say to the wife, What's this going to be about? Hmm. Sometimes the other person knows and sometimes they don't. We live in the great age of the internet. You can look up a show before you ever go and find out what it's about. <laughs> you can get the whole synopsis. You can get the production history. You can find with, you know, two minutes of looking and six minutes of reading, you can know what that show is about. And it always interests me when people come to theater not knowing a thing about what they're about to see. Yeah. And then sometimes get upset with what they're seeing. <laughs> My thing is, you can't denigrate an audience. I mean, the audience, is, the audience is there to pay the bills. And yeah, maybe you're doing a show you wish you didn't have to do. But if that's paying the bills for the next two that maybe you do want to do, you know, you suck it up and you do it <laughs> and you hope you fill the house and then you go on to the next one. That, that's just my feeling about that whole thing. You, you do have to do both. Really. Sure. Yeah. And we see yeah. that a lot down here with all the theaters that do that kind of approach. So uh, you're right, though. It's yeah. funny that, you know, audience members will go into a show completely blind and then be concerned about what they're going to watch. Now, I think the th I can speak for the three of us when I say that that's kind of exciting um, to go into a show not knowing how it's going to go, sure. uh, what direction they're going to take with it. Even if I know what the show is, I mean, Coastal could do it one way, Atlantic Stage could do it another, and that's exciting to me. Um, mm -hmm. So, But then again, some audiences well, just I mean, want to know what they're going into. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All that is wonderful. You, you know, audience members approach these things as they want to approach them. Either I want to know what I'm getting into or I want to be surprised. And there's a, both of those kind of audience now, folks. Uh, and, you know, that's great, too. I like, I like to look something up and kind of know. You still don't know what the approach is going to be from that theater. Mm -hmm. You know, and even if you think you have an idea, even if you've seen a show before. Uh, I've seen two productions of Drowsy Chaperone, which is the funniest musical I ever saw in my life. One was the National Tour one was a very good community theater company, and both times I laughed like crazy. But each time they, you know, individual actors did things a little bit different, even with a show where everybody is a cartoon, mm -hmm. there still was differentiation. I didn't get to see Bright Star, which 
Theater of the Republic just did as a, in a concert version. That's the Edie Brickell, Steve Martin musical. I saw it at CCU when they did it. I went in there with very little expectation of that show. It blew me away. It was wonderful. We usually go to these things with another couple. One of the guys hates musicals. He only goes because the other three of us go. He loved that show. So it, it really is remarkable. Sometimes you're very surprised. I, I went into waiting for Godot with no expectations. <laughs> because everything you hear casually about waiting for Godot is that, oh my God, nothing happens. Oh, you guys at Atlantic Stage made plenty happen. Uh, and it was really wonderful. And the discussion afterwards was really wonderful. And that gets me too. I, as you guys know, I, Roy and I always stay for the talkbacks. Which is great. We love that. Yeah. Occasionally, we're the only ones that have stayed for the <laughs> talkbacks. Which true. is what we That's don't true. love about it, that you are the only two yeah. there. Exactly. Yeah. And I wish more people would, because you get some in, real insights into not only the play, but the actor's process. I wish we would do, you'd see more talkbacks uh, in this area. I know when I did theater in Chicago, a lot of theaters would do talkbacks actually yeah. about with, with during certain shows and you don't see it as often here I think because it's just something you know that it just doesn't happen um, but um, a lot of times I think audience members if it became more of a thing like if you started seeing it more like TOR doing it and Stage Left doing it and places doing it more often you probably would have more people staying afterwards shows because it does it gives like an insight to the process it gives an insight to the actors choices it gives an insight to a lot of different things that yes. people don't know and I guess for our audience we should tell what a talkback is a talkback is essentially usually happens every Sunday after a Sunday matinee um, of a theater run and then on that discussion they ask the audience if they want to stay for a talkback the audience sits there like a few minutes after the show the actors get out of their makeup or costumes they come out and sit out there usually with the director stage manager whoever's like the technical crew sometimes will show up and they'll discuss the process of what the theater is and talk back to the audience and the audience can ask questions and I've been a part of some discussions where it was a two-hour talk back because people were so enthralled in shows. And I've been at ones where it was two minutes because nobody had a question. They just wanted to tell you how good you did. So it, it just varies on the, what a talk back is. I always, I always find it interesting. You know, yeah. on a Sunday afternoon, people are thinking about getting down to, you know, whatever pizza restaurant they like because <laughs> it's now supper time on a Sunday. <laughs> well. Move it. Well, so, thank you, Don, for those comments on that episode. Definitely for digging into Caleb, even though we aren't going to call hey, it. Hey, no, I, I, I completely agree um, with you, Don. I know, like I, <laughs> and, and we, we ended the podcast, I think, on that note. Yeah. Um, I think I probably I did go a little, you know, I vented a little bit, um, when, which <laughs> I think is, you know, it's fine. We just have to, you know, I, I completely agree. You're right, Don. We have to. Um, the audience is there, uh, and it's not just to pay the bills. They're there because we love them, too. Uh, we do really do love mm -hmm. the audience, um, and we hope to do work that they love as well. Um, and sometimes yeah. that means, you know, giving a little bit um, more to them so that we can do the things that we would like to do later on. When you're on your way out the door, if you say, I can't believe, well, Jason, 12 Angry Men, huh. In, the, in TOR, you basically had a, 
nervous breakdown on stage at the end of 12 Angry Men every night you did a performance. And I say to myself, how the heck does somebody do that? You know, that, that it's amazing to me that people are able to do that and to show that level of commitment and to expose yourself like that. Totally admirable and, and the wonderful part of live theater, seeing that happen right in front of you. Yeah, and I, you know, and, I, and it's funny, we were just talking about, I'm gonna go back to what, uh, you know, Mike was digging on Caleb for being supporting the arts too, <laughs> but I was just thinking about a play like Bright Star, uh, which you were talking about seeing at CCU. On the reverse of it, having to make money, Bright Star is not necessarily a bankable, big music type show. Um, so I think the, the problem is, is, too, is that I'm still going to fall. I, I, I fall with Caleb, too, because I think we still need to be able to do those small artsy theater shows. They need to still happen because we need to expose audiences to them. So while I do always agree it needs to be a business and we have to think about it keeping the lights on, I'm glad that there are still people who push back and say we need to do it for the arts in some way, too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because those voices oh, yeah. still well, get I mean, through and you're still able to do those artsy shows. Um, but yeah, when it comes to well, fulfillment in a show, you can still do a goofy, stupid, uh, what was it? Moonlight and applesauce or whatever you, or you said you did. Moonshine and applesauce. Uh, moonshine yeah. and applesauce. Moon, uh, which by the yeah, way, no, it was I'm moon, totally it was moonlight. I wish it were moonshine. <laughs> it was moon, it was moonlight. Oh, yeah. it had every hillbilly cliche in it. I mean, yeah. it was perfectly terrible. I'm interested but, in that I mean, one. One of the things, yeah, one of the things I admire about some theaters and theater of the Republic Tim McGee has managed to build a level of trust with his audience that many of them will go wherever he takes them. Sure. And this is community theater. And he's, you know, you do not find town at every community theater. You do not find rent at every community yep. theater. I mentioned that to him one time out the door because he always stands at the door and shakes hands as everybody leaves. And I say... You do some very brave things. And he says, you can't do the sound of music every night. And you can't do the, you know. And he has managed, um, but a lot of his audience will follow wherever it goes. They may not have all followed the Sideshow, which was a show I had heard of but had never seen before Theater of the Republic did it. The closing number of the first act, when all of the Sideshow folk, you know, pejorative word, but the freaks in the sideshow, when they all sing, who will love me as I am? That was one of the most wonderful episodes of theater I had seen. Now, it helps being a gay man who, back in his teens, was wondering exactly the same thing. But it was so powerful in a musical uh, that you were stunned going out for intermission. Sure. Uh, and, and, and the fact that you have a community theater that will do that kind of, of work and take the chance on making no money out of it, but giving people the opportunity to perform in that sort of space. It's super. And you never know when you're going to find an episode like that. Sure. That you will then remember, you know, like I have remembered some things for the last 60 years. Yeah. Uh, it, 
theater is wonderful that way. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But And we were talking about this. We've talked about this before. I think what's happened is Tim has done such a good job with slowly inserting those type of shows every season, you know. And so now you're right. The audience just sort of goes where he has tickets. Like we said one time, he still puts in the bodyguard type shows, and he still throws out, you know, um, just various shows, like Nonsense they're thinking about doing this year, which is one of those classic kind of like seat filler kind of shows. He'll do the sister acts. But those shows still have good moments and great things that happen, even though they're seat fillers. But by doing that, he's able to throw out Priscilla, Queen of the Deserts and side shows and um, Rent. And, you know, those plays, they're a little bit more edgy, a little bit more risky. Uh, and audience, you're right, audiences, sometimes they go with them. And Sideshow, you know, I know Tim, he's talked about it, it didn't do as well as they wanted it to. But I think he probably did it for the same reason you had a moment connection. You know, that song, he probably had a connection to it, feeling as a gay man himself, you know, sort of that that connection to it. And I think you do that a lot for theater. Like, there's shows that I've done that I thought, nobody's going to see this, but there's a moment in that show that has, that I know audiences are going to be, oh, man. I mean, we did the Laramie Project at CCU when I was a student. Mm-hmm. I directed it. We probably had 30 people at most show up to see it. Um, but there was always, every night, there was two or three people that were emotionally affected by it. And so you, those mm-hmm. are the shows where you really feel like it's worth it. So I don't care if it's nobody came to see it because of those three or four connections. <clears throat> but when I, I think the difference is when we talk about the business of it, yes, as a business side, you do have to be able to, you want to have those connection moments, but you kind of sell those seats. But everybody wants to do those moments, those emotionally connective, like, great pieces. Because it does. It makes you feel good. It makes you feel like I'm doing something that's fulfilling for me, but also at the same time, I'm giving something that's fulfilling to an audience member as well. Yeah, exactly. Don, to transition from that element, because definitely (laughs) from all the things we talk about, I have to wonder, because you brought, you know, you were talking about your background, but the one thing you didn't bring up is that you actually yourself have written plays before and that you actually have playwriting experience. So um, we had an episode with Kevin way back. It was, I think it was like the fourth episode Mm -hmm. where Jason and I were talking to him. And I asked him the question, you know, how much do you make off playwriting? And he laughed in my digital face when I asked him that. So clearly no playwright is going to this to make money. But as a playwright yourself, I just want to ask, what is the appeal of this writing that you do and the telling stories this way? Let me say I started playwriting after I retired and after we moved down here. And it had been an idea I had had in my head for decades and I wrote it, and it, 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 it was a play with music, and it was about Theodore Dreiser, the novelist, and his big brother, who called himself Paul Dresser, who was a very wealthy songwriter. And, and I said, oh good, I could use Paul's songs, and I could use Theodore's memoirs, and put together the story of the sibling rivalry they had, and the terrible family life they came out of. And it's almost a star is born. One star is going down when the other one is going up, this kind of thing. And at that time, Theater of the Republic was just beginning to do book shows. And the first couple of seasons, people would kind of throw names of plays in a hat and Tim would get copies and they would uh, do a cold reading. Actors do cold reading in a in what, the Elegance Flower Shop? Uh, encore, Encore Flowers, yep. Uh, yeah, Encore Flowers, which was a wonderful experience. And they also sell wine there, so that helped. Very good, that's right. Um, and and I, was always, I was always blown away by how some of you actors, a cold reading means you have just got the script. You have not seen the script. 
And by the second page, you're already beginning to get into character. And by the fifth page, you're in it. And that just, I'm just amazed at that. Tim was kind enough to do a reading of my play, which Jason was in, the reading that is. And that was a wonderful experience because what a playwright wants to do after a while, even if you say, I am just doing this to keep my little gray cells, as Poirot would say, occupied. You retire, you can either sit counting your toes or you can find something for your brain to do. And I said, I'll write this thing. It'll just be for me and it's fine. But after a while, you want to hear it in somebody's voice other than the one in your head. And that was a wonderful experience. And, you know, showed me for one thing that that play was never going to go anywhere else. Which, you know, no, I had a very that, similar experience way, about two years that, ago. Yeah, that's the way it went. That's <laughs> the way it works. Yes, yes. Uh, we do, you know, Seven Deadly Sins or yep. whatever. Uh, then I'm talking to one of my friends from Indiana. And I said, okay, I've written this thing and, and you know, I, but I don't know what to do next. And his answer was, how about Stevenson? D.C. Stevenson was the, in the 1920s, the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in Indiana. He built the KKK in Indiana up to over 250,000 members, one in every four white Protestant male in Indiana was a member of the Klan. And then you added the women of the Klan, the Triple K Club for Girls, the junior clan for boys, and you got over 500,000 people in Indiana who were members of the clan. There was also a huge clan movement in Oregon and Michigan, New York State, Illinois, Ohio. People were feeling after the First World War, white Protestant Americans were feeling like their country was being taken from them by immigrants, black people, and Jews. This might sound familiar to some folks at the moment um, because it's never gone away, really. Stevenson is very, a very bombastic demagogue who played on people's fears and said, the government is doing nothing about this. They're stealing your country. Only the Klan can protect you and built up that membership mm-hmm. and took control of the state. The legislature was majority Klan. The governor was a Klan puppet. This only lasted about three years, and the only reason they got rid of Stevenson was because he raped a girl and did it so brutally she died of her injuries. They tried him for murder and put him away. The Klan basically collapsed without the figurehead, without him in front of it. Things were happening politically in this country in 2015. And I said, this is interesting. There might be some parallels. And so I wrote a play called Grand Dragon in Power uh, that basically charts his downfall. And (laughs) nobody was interested. I have sent that that play out over 100 times to 100 different theaters. In some form or another, that play has gone out. But I saw a submission opportunity for a radio play, and I said, I've, I looked online. I found out what you had to do to format a radio script and what you had to do. One thing you have to do with radio is every, every time someone comes into a room, they have to be addressed by name because 
Otherwise, the radio audience doesn't know who the heck's there. You know, there are all these little kind of things, you know, and you're specify, specifying sound and sound effects. And I sent radio play off to an opportunity to the Radio Theater Project in St. Petersburg, Florida. And it had not been off out of my hands in the email, but a few days and, one, and somebody from there called and said, we want to do this play. Well, what I found out was the gatekeeper, and there's always a gatekeeper because theaters get hundreds of submissions of plays, of new plays, uh, especially when they advertise an opportunity. There's always a gatekeeper. There's always somebody doing triage. There's always somebody reading them all and saying, okay, this is the pile that nobody was going to be, ever going to be interested in. And here's the pile for artistic director and the assistants and, and whoever else is reading for them to do. Mm -hmm. This guy read it and saw the role he wanted to play <laughs> and then convinced everybody else to do it. And Radio Theater Project did that show. They did it live before an audience a live audience, and they posted it on SoundCloud, which you, where you can still find it. If you go to SoundCloud and search on Grand Dragon in Power, it will pop up. Uh, and it was one, they did it so beautifully well. And it was theater for sure, and off on the one side is the guy doing the sound effects. And, if, and again, if that doesn't hook you for, okay, now I want to write another one. Uh, and it's interesting about that show too. It's just been done as a staged reading, which means there's some action. Uh, people are carrying scripts, but they're not behind music stands. They're actually doing some action. It was, re it was done at the end of November uh, by online by a theater in Williamsburg, Virginia called Panglossian Productions. They think theater will help us be the, the best of all possible worlds. Uh, I had submitted that play to them in 2017 in 2020, they called me up and said, we got a director that wants to do this. And they did it. And that's available at Panglossian Productions on their Facebook page. The thing that interested me about the Klan was Les Stevenson, who is a nasty piece of work. The Klan is in every city and town. It's in the churches. Their biggest supporters are evangelical white Christians. I had found out ages ago when I was a grad student in history that the church I went to in the small town I lived in had, 30 years before, been the Klan headquarters and the preacher at that time had been the head of the Klan. Mm. It's an oppressive atmosphere and you have ordinary small town people trying to cope. And everybody's got choices to make. Resist or collaborate. Yeah. Go along to get along. Uh, go along or get out of town. Um, do what you need to do because your business is at stake. And I wrote a play with these people. It's an ensemble thing for seven, for seven performers. Uh, and all of those people have decisions to make and they all interact. It, it, really, it really got to me because I was writing about people I knew. <laughs> it finally occurred to me that the people I went to church with in the 50s had been in that church in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, finally I'm going, these are the people I know. These are the people actually who are my relatives, yeah. some of them. So that was interesting. And I wrote this thing. And then you, what do you do with it? 
the Dramatists Guild, which is the trade association for playwrights, uh, which is a national organization. They're broken up into regions, and the region out of Atlanta said, well, they do what they call Friday Footlights, which is a reading um, of a play, two in one night. The way they do it is very, they ask everybody who's a member if they want to participate, want to throw their play into the hat for this, and then they draw. They draw the two plays that they'll, that'll be done, and then they'll draw an alternate or two. This particular Friday Footnotes was going to be at Atlantic Stage. They were doing, you know, Footlights goes to Myrtle Beach, and <laughs> it was going to be at Atlantic Stage. I got third in the drawing, which meant I was the alternate. And then somebody backed out. And they say, you know, you could still do this. At that point, I'm saying to myself, oops, because part of the thing is you have to, you have to cast this thing yourself yeah. and produce it. I knew, I know theater, I know all of you people, I don't have any of your phone numbers. Now, I do have your messenger accounts at this point. By the way, I love actors, but I don't know any of them well enough to call them up and say, hey, I need, you know, at that time, eight of you. Um, so I got a hold of Kevin and I said, what do I do? And he says, what you just did is you call for help. He passed it, he <laughs> passed it on to Penny Langley and said, you wanted to direct? Here you go. Find a cast and do this thing for Don. Um, and she did. And she did an absolutely wonderful job of it. And there were eight people at that time. Mike was in it. Jason was in it. A whole bunch of wonderful people were in it. Um, Scott Maxwell. Scott Maxwell was great in it. Scott, Maxwell, Scott Maxwell was in it. Michael Trello was in it. Yep. Lordy. Uh, the first time it occurred to me, I was act that some of the actors I was asking to say terrible things about Catholics were themselves Catholic, <laughs> which happened to him, uh, and it happened to somebody when it was produced as well. And it was a wonderful experience for me hearing you again. You're hearing your words, and you're going, oh, I need to change this, I need to change that. You find out that the line you thought was funny really was, <laughs> and the other line you thought was funny really was. <laughs> You also find out that maybe you have one too many characters. And Jason did such a good job, I cut his character immediately after that reading. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Because I could combine much. it. Because I, I could combine it with another character. I agree, he's superfluous. Plus, the fewer characters you can do, the more likely you are to be yep. produced. True. Professional theaters who are paying <laughs> actors don't want a big payroll. That's why we see a lot of... of uh, plays now which are two people screaming at each other for two hours or or you know there are three people like subject of roses which isn't new but it falls in that category uh, they don't want a huge cast unless it's a musical and unless it's uh in community theater you know and you guys know this if you're paying people you would want to pay as few people as you can get by with so that also helped me to cut an extra person I saw a submission opportunity for a play, a theater in Austin. They do a thing every year, uh, where the, which they call their Emerging Artist Competition. I am 74 years old but at that point, but I was an emerging artist because I hadn't been fully produced anymore. You were a late bloomer. Yeah. I was a late bloomer, <laughs> definitely a late bloomer. And, you know, and... I thought, I have this play about, a, about the Klan, and I'm going to send it 
to a theater in Texas. It's going to be so cool. Again, the gatekeeper loved it. And then so did their readers, which was nice. And it needed a little, it needed some work. It didn't get one of the three first places where the, where the plays were ready for production. It got the next three, which were ready for workshop. And she, and the gal called me and said, I really want to do this. Let's see what we can do with it over the phone and the email. And she would do suggestions and I would either take them or not. And I would rework the play. And I would, you know, I was doing rewrites and doing stuff by suggestions. And one other thing you discussed in one of your uh, podcasts, punctuation, punctuation, italics and stage directions. Our good old yeah. Milton contribution to the show. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Now, the... <laughs> Director producer of trade with, of trade with clan. One of the first things she said to me was, "You write in perfectly grammatical English, but if an actor sees a comma, they will stop." So she said, "And I do Oxford commas. So there's even more commas. There's a comma before every end." <laughs> she said, "Take out all the commas, and then go back through it and only put." punctuation mark that will enforce the rhythm you're trying to do otherwise let the actor figure it out thank god for find and replace because i work in microsoft <laughs> word and i could go find every comma replace with nothing and then went through and put very few more commas in after your discussion about stage directions i have been back through that play and taken out a bunch of italicized stage directions. I've also taken out a bunch of italicized words where I hear it with this emphasis, but maybe somebody else won't, and maybe this doesn't need to be there. You learn a lot. That They put that play up January 7th. Well, I've got the thing right here. Uh, January 17th, this year, the last year, yeah. 2020 for 11 performances. Now I got a licensing fee of $100 per performance, which meant I got 1100 bucks out of this, nice. which was about enough to fly Roy and I there. <laughs> yeah. To be there for, for dress rehearsal and the first weekend, three shows. And that was enough to do that and fly back. Since we were also, we were in the bedroom, the spare bedroom of the act of the director producer, uh, so we could afford to do that. I mean, that's what it that's what it paid. It was hundred bucks a night for eleven nights. I was there. They did talkbacks. They advertised. Oh, the playwright will be here, and we will do talkbacks every night the first weekend, and we did. And I knew it was a play that reached people when almost everybody stayed yeah. for those talkbacks and the kinds of comments I got, uh, the, the kind of thing, what they had taken from this thing and the questions they asked me about the research and, and all this. Um, it was a wonderful experience and, the, and they were reviewed. That's one thing I dislike about the local scene is that you guys do not get reviewed. That's right. So the public has no place to go and find out if, well, maybe something is worth my time. Uh, Austin, oh, 
when the gal said she wanted to do it, I said, this is a clan play and you're in Texas. And she said, this is Austin. <laughs> totally different kettle of fish. Yeah, not, not your usual <laughs> uh, Texas. Yeah, I mean, Austin is, Austin is weird and they like it that way. Right. And, they're very, and, it's, and it's very liberal. And, and uh, so it was a good place to, for this play to, to come up. I, and, and it was wonderful. And then the reviews came in. And Broadway World Austin says this play should be seen everywhere in the country. And the Austin Chronicle, which is the uh, alternative newspaper in Austin, said, Trade with Clan sits in the soul as great art does. Awesome. These are the first reviews I have ever gotten. I literally about died. <laughs> I mean, it was, absolutely, it was absolutely wonderful. When the world starts again, the, you're going to be putting this everywhere is what we're saying. We're going to see the show please. everywhere. It, it, well, it's about to be published because I sent it to the same publisher that uh, publishes Kevin's at least two of his mm-hmm. things. Next Stage Press? And uh, Next Stage Press. And that guy liked it too. And so it's about to come out. So awesome. it'll be published. Which means I cannot send it to a whole lot of places I could send it before because a lot of opportunities for submissions do not want published plays. Sure. They want new plays that they can really work on. Uh, so there will be that. But it, it will be published. The... There is supposed to be something like 20,000 people writing plays in this country. Sometimes I think it's twice that many. Uh, 20,000 people writing plays. There are 2,000, in a normal year, 2,000 world premieres in the United States of new work. So that's one-tenth. Mm-hmm. And that probably includes... There's a whole lot of people writing one-minute plays, a whole lot of people writing 10-minute plays. I've written three full-length plays. One of them was produced on the radio, basically, in front of a live audience. The other one was fully produced, scenic, costumed, staged for 11 performances in a major metropolitan area. This is absolutely unheard of. And I am so utterly grateful. But again, in Austin, that play was up from January 17th to February 2nd. And what happened in March? (laughs) I have been so totally fortunate with this thing. You know, I won a little lottery and got it read. You know, I found a gatekeeper who absolutely loved it. It got produced before everything shut down, and uh, yeah, when you're when you're playwriting and you have that kind of luck, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And you know, is it a good play? I hope it's a good play. I think it's a good play. We got good reactions from it. Um, is it better than the other nineteen thousand nine hundred ninety nine plays that are out there? I don't know, but it's totally. Sometimes I think it's totally random. It's totally random. And yes, nobody is making money out of this. Tracy Letts may be, may be making money out of this. Tony Kushner could be making money, except that he's making money on screen more than, than anything else. Most people are not. And um, so you do other things. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you work in your family business or you teach or whatever. 
Well, that's very cool that that happened as it did for you, Don. I know for my own sake, I attempted playwriting and it failed miserably. Um, and after doing the first stage reading of something I wrote, I was like, I never want to do this again. Uh, not my thing. Uh, but for you, it certainly worked out well. So I'm certainly glad to hear that. Well, it, it did. But on the other hand, I can't do what you do. I can't do short stories and I can't do, I, I would not be able to do a novel. I can't plot. My, my plays are all historical. And Tony Kushner, who of course wrote Angels in America, says history has the best stories anyway. It's true. Yeah. And then you see what you can do with them. But you know, Trade with Clan does have a plot to some degree. Uh, it's basically the stranger comes into town and is confronted with the, with he's not a stranger, but he's been away for a while, and he's confronted with all these changes and what do you do about them? Which is, you know, a pretty standard trope. I could not write a novel. But I love hearing people talk in my head, especially people I know. Uh, and that's the thing with those, those, those two plays, is I knew those people. I hear them in my head, and I know what they're going to say. And whether I can ever do that again, because here in COVID, you'd think, oh, my God, I've got all this wonderful time. I can write like crazy. <laughs> One thing, a lot of us have found out that we can't because we're so utterly depressed and we need the, socializ the socializing and all that to keep things sparking. And you need to see theater <laughs> to, to keep your own juices going. Um, but I think I've started like three things and none of them are going anywhere. Um, they might later, <laughs> you know, but they aren't now. But you know, light, when I can hear the person in my head, I want to say, okay, she would say that now. He would say that now um, and then find out that an actor and a director can get together and have that person say what you thought they were going to say, not necessarily the way you thought they were going to say it. And that's the exciting thing, too. When, once you've written something like that and it goes out and you have a bunch of other people, because theater is collaborative and you know, we write these things in solitude and then a whole raft of other people get involved yep. <laughs> the three of us have a question that we would like to ask of you given that you're perhaps our number one fan of this podcast uh we've done a couple of episodes <laughs> i think we're like somewhere in like the 20s as for in terms of episode count yeah. is there an episode or a topic discussion we have not covered in an episode that you think we should uh for like a future episode you know you've listened to every single episode you're like man these are great talking points but these guys have not talked about this specific thing yet. Why haven't they done it? Uh, is there a future episode in mind that you would have for us? I am so interested in process. I, I've, Tom Penn did an elementary acting class for civilians uh, a few summers ago. And I took it because I thought if I'm trying to write plays, I should try to understand the actor's process a little better. And you come out of something like that with even more respect than you had before for the actors and their processes. Uh, I, I, one thing I would like to know whether folks have had experiences originating a role or having to do a play that is so well known and the performances are so well known, mm. how do you approach that? Mm. Uh, I, I always wonder what's, what's the process? I talked about going to see Streisand in Funny Girl in 1964. That show has not been revived on Broadway since because whatever actor 
steps into that role. The spirit, the ghost of Barbara Streisand doing that role on stage and on screen is going to be there. And what do you do? Do you try do you try to do it as well as she did? Do you try to do it the same way? Do you try to do it some other person's way? And I think all of you guys have seen enough theater to have seen people do roles that you then may be cast into. Yeah. How do you decide what you're going to do and how you approach it um, when, when you know that people have some expectation in the audience for the way they think Maybe it's supposed to be done. I'd like, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear a little bit about actors' process. That, that is way. a I good mean, I topic, think, I think. That's a great that topic. That is a good topic. Yeah, yeah I, you know, because it's funny you say that because I've definitely been in those parts before. In fact, I'll just do a quick thing here. Mike and I did a SoundCloud version of The Grinch, mm-hmm. um, which is just floating out there this past Christmas, and we just sort of put it out there. Um, and I had people that heard it, and when I was trying to do The Grinch, you know, The Grinch is such an iconic thing. And Jim Carrey did a version. And now every version of the Grinch people hear, they go, well, you don't sound like the Jim Carrey version. It's like, I don't want to do the Jim Carrey version. You know, it's like you have the Karloff and the Jim Carrey version. It's like nobody, everybody wants to make their own version. And I don't know if you happen to saw the um, the Grinch version they did for NBC. Did anybody see it here? I don't know. Mm-hmm. If you did out in the real world, I, you know, Matthew Morrison, who's a talented actor, performer himself, did a version of the Grinch, which for me, I did not like. I, I mean, I looked at it and I was just like, oh God. Um, what is I didn't he, see it either, is, but, the, but the reviews were in, yeah. a lot of people didn't like it. I mean, it. his version of it was just, it was like a hipster, um, it was like a hipster version of the Grinch. And it's sort of like, he's a curmudgeon. Why would you even think about going this direction? But I could understand being like, I don't want to do what everybody else does. And yeah, I, I, that would be a really interesting concept because you're right. Something like Funny Girl, yeah, everybody would expect it to be like a Barbara Streisand role. You know, when yeah. you see a certain part and you think of it, it always comes back to, well, who's going to play that role again? And somebody has to, somebody has to be the first person out the gate to do it, and they can either sink or swim. You know, it just depends on what they yeah. do, right? I mean, I mean, Channing was wonderful in A Low Dolly, but then she was followed by about ten other women who were also wonderful in it, yeah. and it's been revived several times. And those women have been wonderful in it. Yeah. Um, and I've seen in community theater, you know, it's a kind of part that you just go into and slam. Yeah. And nobody's expecting a specific turn of phrase, a specific way of saying something. Not really. And people are open to it. But then I think. Somebody's going to eventually get up on a stage in a production of Funny Girl and sing people, people who need people, and they're going to be up against the recording everybody knows. Sure. You know, and how, how, how do you approach that? Yeah, that's excellent. I think that is, in great fact, question. a future yeah, episode right now. Yep. So we're definitely putting that on the docket. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've already so written awesome. it down. Very cool, very cool. Well, thank you, Don, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on. Yes, thank you. Uh, It it was a pleasure for me. There's nothing like hearing myself talk for over an hour. (laughs) Well, that's what we do on a podcast as well. That's part of it is just hearing ourselves talk and ramble about certain things. But we enjoyed having you on. Uh, Thank you, Caleb. Thank you, Jason, for being here with me. Anytime. Yeah, thank you, guys. And make sure to check out Don's um, SoundCloud of his... um, Grand Dragon in Power. Awesome, very cool. It's about it's about sixty five minutes. We'll be sure to post a link in the uh, the post itself for uh, cool. the podcast Thanks. as well. So, 
Thank you Thanks. all for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, keep tuned in for the next one, and we'll see you around. So take care.